Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. One of my favorite passages about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter uh, 11. <laughs> and in this, he, he has raised, um, he's come. Lazarus has been dead in the tomb four days. This is a fantastic story that applies to our life. It says, Jesus, he's standing before the tomb, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad smell. For he has been there four days. This is so true. Jesus, if you'd have come ten minutes after he was dead, maybe he wouldn't stink so much. But it's four days too long. And he really stinks by now. We can't bring him out of the tomb because he's, nobody's going to want to be around him because he stinks so much. I'm just wondering who in your life you've put in the tomb because they stink too much. Know anybody whose behavior stinks? And we come, you know, we believe miracles in every area except with somebody who's really stinking in their behavior and attitudes. And we believe in miracles till it comes to tomb people. And when it comes to tomb people, no, no, it's too late. Know anybody like that? Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? That is the power of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine the expectation as everybody stood in front of the tomb? Could this really happen? The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped as strips of linen and and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So, Jesus did raise a man from the tomb. And the surprising thing is, he didn't stink anymore. So we read in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So he's raised him from the dead. Now, as you read the New Testament, after that, everywhere Jesus went, Lazarus would show up. Because after all, he's alive, and he was in the tomb. He's grateful. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now what's that tell you? He didn't stink anymore. (laughs) Because nobody invites to dinner somebody who stinks. It's one thing to raise a person from the dead. You believe in heaven. So many of you, though, don't believe Jesus can stop a person from stinking. We give up on people. Keep that stone in front of that tomb because they're never going to stop stinking and never change. 
And then in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. <laughs> Whoa, we want to see this guy who was in the tomb and now is alive and doesn't stink anymore. He was proof that Jesus was God, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this is the staggering line. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Now they're not only going to kill Jesus, they're going to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he's proof that Jesus is supernatural in his power because he can stop a person stinking. And no one else can do that but God. So we got to kill Lazarus. That's the point of this story. I want to talk about that a little later in my message.
Oh, they're so talented. Well, a lot of you I know usually come to the 9 o'clock service and look a little sleepy today. And so we have some cappuccino out there if you need to go out there and keep awake. I love the story of Lazarus because he is proof that when you bring Jesus into a situation, there is always hope. Jesus proves with Lazarus that if something is dead, it doesn't have to stay dead. People put Lazarus in a tomb, but then Jesus showed up. The tomb is where you put Jekyll that you married at a glorious wedding, but he turned into Hyde. And you've decided that your marriage is hopeless. The tomb is where you put people who are no longer responding to you. They are dead, apparently, in their responsive mechanism, in their feelings. The tomb is where you put a marriage that is decaying. And it's stinking so much that you can't stand it anymore. The tomb is where you put a relationship that you think is hopeless and is dead. I love this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead because it applies so directly to us in our relational challenges. The marriage of some of us this morning is in the tomb, isn't it? It's in the tomb this morning. And you're here for encouragement and hope. We may still be living together in the same house, but that house is not a home because the life has gone out of our love, our feelings for each other. Surely there is someone here this morning who has made up their mind that their marriage is hopeless and you are already planning to go see a lawyer to finally put it in the tomb where it belongs. You're thinking about that and have been for weeks. For others, our marriage is on the way to the tomb. Our feelings are having a hard time breathing. Our love needs a respirator. It's a struggle. I want you to know we can make any choice we want in how we behave... But we cannot choose the consequences of our attitudes and behavior. Martha is the sister of Lazarus, and I love her response in John chapter 12, verse 38. When Jesus asks her to open up the tomb, what does Martha say? But Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been in there four days. Martha lacks imagination. She thinks, Jesus, if you had just shown up five minutes or ten minutes after he died, then he wouldn't, have, wouldn't be stinking so much as he does now. But it's been four days. Not just one, not two days. The third day he really stunk, but the fourth day he's getting worse and worse in his odor. Martha doesn't want to believe Jesus can do anything about the guy in the tomb 
Now remember, she knew that Jesus had walked on water. She knew that Jesus had turned water into wine. She knew that Jesus had healed lepers and those who were possessed by demons. She knew that Jesus had once fed 5,000 people by multiplying a few fish into sufficient amount of food for all. She did not doubt that Jesus had supernatural power to do miracles. She just drew a line at two miracles. Two miracles were just out of the question. Lazarus was just too dead. He just stunk too much to imagine that Jesus could do anything about him. Surely someone here this morning believes Jesus can do miracles. You don't doubt any of the miracles in the Bible. You just can't imagine Jesus doing a miracle with the person you've put in the tomb. You just can't imagine tomb miracles in your life. Maybe with one of your children who's now a teenager or is grown and gone from the house. And you have put in the tomb because of their stinking behavior. It's hard to believe in a miracle. Legions of believers are unbelievers when it comes to people they've put in the tomb. Believers who are unbelievers. So we decide to change them ourselves. We decide that we've got to wake them up from the bad things that they're doing. That we've got to wake them up to how their behavior is affecting us and others and just how disappointing they are. We've got to wake them up. And you know the usual plan for waking up a person. It's to get a big stick, maybe a baseball bat, crowbar, and walk into the tomb and start whooping on that dead person. Whoop, 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 whoop. And then we draw back. Are you alive yet? Have you woken up? No. Whoop, 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 whoop. This will raise you from the dead. Whoop, 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 whoop. And periodically, every other day, we go into the tomb and whoop on that person who's dead. We'll raise them from the dead. What am I talking about? Criticism. Nothing is more common than for people to think that they they can wake up a person by whooping on them with criticism. This is the normal human way. In my research this last week, I found a website called I Hate Men. Now, many of you women I know are writing that down so you can check it out. It's full of interesting information. For example... True story. How many men does it take to change a roll of of toilet paper? Answer, no one knows. It's never happened. (laughs) This site beats up on men without mercy. It says that a man found a bottle on the beach and out popped a genie and the genie gave him one wish. So the man said, I wish that I was five times more intelligent than I am. The genie said, make another wish. You don't want that wish. He says, no, I want to be five times more intelligent than I am. Genie said, okay. Whoop! He turned into a woman. (laughs) 
this website is very hard on men and increases negativity of women towards men. I repeatedly see over the years, though, one of the most stunning lessons of life for me is that people are a lot more sensitive than we think they are. It reminds me of the guy who stopped going to football games because every time he saw the teams get in a huddle to call a play, he thought they were talking about him. I think it's significant that Freud, in spite of all he knew about the mind and the human heart, was rattled by the tiniest of criticisms. In fact, he broke relationships with virtually every one of his understudies over time because sooner or later they had a comment to make that differed from his opinion. Jung, one of his... Uh, most favorite students he broke relationship with because Jung had some differences with him. Freud was a lot more sensitive than you would ever expect. C.S. Lewis, I think one of the most outstanding stories in literature is that he almost did not write his classic The Chronicles of Narnia. And the reason is one of his best friends, J.R. Tolkien, was highly critical of the imagination of C.S. Lewis. Lewis, this Oxford professor who had so many awards, so many successes, was far more sensitive to criticism than anyone would think. That is why the best marriages, the best parent-child relationships are not built on criticism. Criticism, even if the man in your life or woman or child, even if they don't react and break down in pain, it will create emotional distance. Because instead of being their wife or husband or instead of being their loving parent, you have become their critic. Criticism is a terrible habit to develop. And yet, so many people are far on the way to developing criticism as one of their core habits. I keep telling us, you will perfect what you practice. It has often been said that the second half of our life is the result of our habits developed in the first half of our life. The second half of our life is the result of the habits that we have developed in the first half of our life. That is true. Jesus can breathe life into whatever is dead and whoever is dead, but not if you insist on beating on them with your criticism. You are in the way of Jesus. Let me tell you a story about a counseling situation of a person that you will not know because she is not part of this church. After years of being single, uh, she finally met the man of her dreams. And after dating him for four years, even though their dating relationship had its ups and downs, she made up her mind that their love was strong and that they would have a, a wonderful marriage. 
I had my reservations about their compatibility, but I went ahead and I married them anyway because they were so strong that their marriage was going to be good. So the wedding was spectacular, but it only took a couple of years for her to be back into my office. And she was back into my office because she thought that she had married a man who was dedicated to making her feel treasured and meeting her needs. After all, he had promised that in his wedding vows. But instead, soon after the marriage, he became self-centered, very busy with his career, paid hardly any attention to her, didn't nurture her through any of the ways that she expected him to nurture. And she thought that the only way that she could change him was through confrontation and making demands about becoming more sensitive to her as a woman. And you know what happened as she made demands and criticized him. Things just got worse and worse. Worse and worse. Until finally, she put him in the tomb. Now he, of course, was convinced that the problems were all her fault. He said that she was demanding, and guess what? His critic. You see, criticism never brings out the best in a person. It makes them defensive. It closes down their heart. It makes them really quite unresponsive to us. The opposite of what the effect we hope it has. The reason is, criticism never brings out the best in people because it sees the worst. And what you see is what you get. This is a key principle in all of life. If you can't see it, you can't do it. But if you see it in critically in another person, that's what you're going to get. You're going to bring more of it out. Criticism just makes you their critic. And it's hard to hold hands with a critic, isn't it? But today, eight years later, he is no longer self-centered and inconsiderate as a husband like he once was. And if you knew her like I do, you'd see her eyes now sparkle instead of having that dead sense about them. And she'll tell you all the ways that he makes her feel special. Now, how did that happen? She made some choices about her own attitudes and behavior. Because she remembered, I said, you have to change anything, draw a circle around yourself and start there. Because the only person you are in control of is you. The only person you can change is you. And if you change you, you probably will change the people around you because they have a new you to respond to. So I'd like to share with you the decisions that she made. And the first is this. She decided to go the route of affirmation. She wanted a triple A marriage. And the first A in it was affirmation. She decided never to miss the tiniest opportunity to be affirming of the guy in the cave. You know, everyone is like the moon. We have our dark side. Which means there's never a shortage of material to criticize if we so choose. But remember, we always have choices about what we focus on. 
We get to choose our attitudes, but we don't get to choose the consequences of our attitudes, do we? We get to choose our attitudes, but we do not get to choose the consequences of those attitudes. It's like getting up in the morning and throwing a handful of dirt in your car's carburetor before you drive to work. Try it. Your car does not function very well with dirt in the carburetor. But see, that's what we're doing with our children and so often with our mate. We get up and we throw dirt. We got dirt on them. There's plenty of things to criticize. So we pick up some of that and throw it in their face. And we wonder why the relationship is sputtering. Dennis Rainey, the Christian psychologist, says something very interesting about affairs that I have read in many places. And he says this in his book, Lonely Husbands, Lonely Wives. A mistress is not a sexual animal who is an expert in satisfying a man. Her real power is in the art of praising him. That's what attracts him, not her body. That's why so often you find uh, someone who's in an affair with a woman. And people stand back and say, what does he see in her? She's not that good looking. Because that's not what seduced him. It's the same way why how a man seduces a married woman. It's not because he is such a good looking guy. Trust me, I've seen it again and again. It's because in her home, her husband either takes her for granted or he's her critic. Something, he's always telling her what's wrong. And she's at work and this guy begins to praise her and admire her for who she is. And he affirms her and affirms her and she breaks down and is irresistibly drawn to him. That's how it happens. Here is something very interesting about praise. I have found that people usually live up to the verbal and image, positive or negative, you paint of them. It is so true of parenting. If a parent uses the criticism approach to stop their children stinking in certain areas, trust me, your children are going to just live down to that image you paint of them. They will. If you're married, if you criticize the person you're married, after a while it deflates them and de-energizes them and they just say, well, I might as well be that way. Why try? All I get is criticism and hardly any affirmation when I do anything right. The other thing about praise is it does wonders for the other person's hearing. It does wonders for the person's hearing. Because it makes them responsive. Praise is like a shot of adrenaline. It energizes the other person to respond to you. For example, if your mate praises you for being so thoughtful, what's your reaction to that? You want to do more thoughtful things. Because you like that praise. It is the human nature to respond to praise that way. John, Dr. John Gotham, the one who studied hundreds of close marriages over 
30 years, says that long-lasting, in-love marriages give at least five doses of praise to one dose that is negative. Praise takes a comatose person and gradually over time makes them more responsive. Criticism will close their heart. They do that in self-defense. The criticism hurts so much that after a while they just numb up their heart. That's what criticism will do over time. And that's why many people have unresponsive children today. We get to choose our attitudes, but we do not get to choose the consequences of our attitudes. What I'm pleading for is grace in our marriages and in our parenting. Grace-filled families. Secondly, the second A in her triple-A marriage was appreciation. She began, she began, became determined to practice appreciation of him. She became determined never to miss an opportunity to show gratitude to him for the smallest thing. If you don't remember anything else today, I hope you'll write this down and remember this. Your thoughts don't bless anyone but you. Your thoughts don't bless anyone but you. You know, so many of us will think grateful thoughts about our children are the one we're married to. And we'll see things that, you know, we're happy that they're that way and doing it. But we'll just think it. We'll just think it. Dr. R.A. Torrey was a famous preacher in the 50s and 60s, and he tells about a boat that sank in Lake Michigan. And there was a North a Western University student who was an extremely strong student who courageously swam repeatedly out to the sinking ship and saved 23 people from drowning before that ship sank underneath the surface of the water. And evidently, Tori tells about how he was using this event as an illustration in a sermon one Sunday in Los Angeles in his church about this guy who had the courage to swim out and save these people. And the guy, now very old, was in the congregation. And so he did a little interview with the guy, and this is the question he asked of him. He said, when you think back over that event, what is the most dominant memory that you have of it after all these years? And the man dropped his eyes and said this, No one, not one, said thanks. It is astonishing to me the ingratitude of people. But I think one of the most common human failings is ingratitude. The lack of expressing appreciation. We think it, but we don't say it. Am I right or wrong on that? Ingratitude is a universal human failing. So I'm asking you, decide to be different because you are called to be light in a dark world. Decide today to be different. 
determine that instead of being a critic, you will yield to the scriptures and become an encourager and a praise person of other people. So last week I was working at home in my study on a singles teaching for Wednesday night because I teach the singles group on Wednesday night at 7. And by the way, if you're single, uh, you're invited. I'm going through the life of Jesus and his teachings on Wednesday nights. So I was working on this uh, teaching and noon came and so I got up from the desk in my study and went to the refrigerator to fix myself a lunch. And there was nothing but chick food in there. <laughs> Vegetables and yogurt, I'm telling you the truth. No man food in sight. And uh, you know, what I did was, what any man would do, I began to complain. I was thinking, here I am serving God sacrificially and I'm on the verge of starvation in my own house because my wife doesn't bring food. I'm thinking, why doesn't Susie take care of me? I have all these unspiritual thoughts towards my wife. So get the scene. This is true. I'm at my desk because I refuse to eat yogurt. I'm at my desk leaning over with my head on the desk, barely breathing. And at 1.30, Susie comes walking in, all chipper, so glad to see me, with a sandwich that she had bought for me. So, who am I? I am Eeyore near death. I sound just like Eeyore. Do you think I thank her? No, Eeyore doesn't thank her. He complains. It's 1.30. One and a half hours past lunchtime. And no man can survive this way. Eeyore gets all the facts right, but he doesn't get his attitude right. But Eeyore never knows he's Eeyore. And a lot of you are Eeyore, and you don't know you're Eeyore. Because Eeyores always think it's normal. They get the facts right, but they don't get their attitude right. It's 1.30. So I eat this sandwich, grumbling. Friday morning, I'm working on this cotton-picking sermon. And I come to this point on gratitude. Sometimes I hate to write sermons. <laughs> Writing sermons that apply to life can be very hard on the preacher. Anyway, I'm writing a sermon. I'm doing, getting to the point on appreciation and gratitude. And God speaks to me. And I know it's God because he always begins this way. Fool! <laughs> this is honest to God. This is what the Holy Spirit says to me. I'm telling you the truth. Fool, did Eeyore do this Wednesday with his wife at lunch? And I was, <laughs> I was so convicted. And then I knew what I had to do, which is to go and admit that. And I hate to do any admitting. Don't be looking at me like that. You're the same way as I am. You don't admit very much either. So I go out to the garage. This is a true story. I go out to the garage Friday morning. And I say, honey, I'm writing this sermon on showing gratitude and being thankful. And I am convicted that when you brought me that sandwich on Wednesday, I was Eeyore. 
And all I did was complain. And I just want to ask your forgiveness and to say to you, thank you for bringing the sandwich. (laughs) This is what Susie said. I'm not making this up. Honey, please keep preaching on marriage the rest of the year. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't don't be doing that. Because I want to ask you, this past month, have you been doing a lot of complaining? Or you've been doing a lot of saying thank you? Which, have you been Eeyore? Are you been the kind of person who hasn't missed the smallest opportunity to say thank you? We're all Eeyores. Unless we determine to be different. So Colossians 3 verse 15 simply commands us to what? Be thankful. It doesn't say be thankful if everything looks good. It doesn't be thankful if you have nothing to complain about. It's a commandment. That means that you have a choice. You can either focus on what you don't like or you can find something good and be thankful about it. you got a choice. And it's all about what you focus on because there is always something to criticize in a person. Am I right? There is always something that's dirt that you can throw in their face. Now, you are developing your habits right now. You can determine to be the kind of person who's going to develop a habit of being a critical person. Having a critical spirit. You can always see the dirt in people and you can always be throwing it around. You can be that kind of person. But you're going to get what you see. We get to choose our behavior and attitudes, but we don't get to choose the consequences. Determined today to be a good finder instead of a fault finder. It's a choice. The third thing she did was she practiced admitting. That was the third A in her AAA marriage. Admitting. First affirmation, then appreciation, then third admitting. She started admitting things that she had never admitted before because she was so busy criticizing. Here's what she said to me. I finally saw the futility of lecturing my husband to improve him. I realized that I couldn't expect him to get self-control in some area of his life when I didn't have control of my tongue. So I went to my husband and I said, Honey, I need to change some things and one of them is I'm going to get off your back. And my husband stunned me. He said, You know why it's been so hard for me to break some of my habits, is because you've been criticizing me so much, it just took all the desire right out of me. And you know why it took the desire out of me? I didn't want to improve, because if I did, it would mean you were right. That's profound. I didn't want to change, because it would prove you were right. Criticism makes, not only deflates a person's energy, it de-energizes them, and it makes them defensive. Parents, there's probably a lot of room for you to do some admitting. Maybe the tone of your voice. Maybe you have been never missing an opportunity to see what they have done wrong instead of never missing an opportunity to affirm and praise them. 
It's too bad that we think admitting is weak. My guess is many of us do very little admitting because we think that shows weakness, but in fact it takes a strong person to admit things. And in fact, admitting is almost irresistible. It's almost irresistible. I have seen this so often that when a person starts to do admitting, the other person starts eventually, not overnight, to do some admitting themselves. They become responsive. But if you want to, you can keep beating on them. Wake up. But it'll never work. The problem is most of us have never had a model for admitting and being vulnerable. Most of us grew up in a family with a dad or maybe a mother who never did any admitting. They were never humble or vulnerable. Now you think that's normal. You know what's happening? You are passing on the sins of the last generation to the next. You're keeping it going. That's what you're doing. Because you're just like your dad, never admitting. Oh, I plead with you. Don't pass on the sins of the last generation. Determine to be different. If you come to FPC, you'll get another model. From the scriptures, another way. And it's your choice. Which way will you go? Did you notice in our scripture reading that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees tried to kill Lazarus? In John 12, verse 9, we read, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Because Lazarus didn't stink anymore. He was undeniable evidence that Jesus had the power to transform people. And everybody was interested in that. They had to kill Lazarus in order to get rid of the evidence. There are so many people, surely some of us here this morning, who can come to church, we're stinking. We're stinking. But to admit that. You look around and the evidence is all over this church where people used to stink. They don't stink anymore. Because they came into a personal relationship of submission to Jesus. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to surrender to Him. And until you surrender to Him, you'll never get rid of your stink. But if you come to Jesus... In a personal relationship of Him, Lord, and you as His servant, He will take your stink away. That's what He specializes in. Is there someone here this morning who will admit that you've been stinking lately? How do you know? Well, your wife's been telling you. Or your husband. Or one of your children. Or someone at work. You don't want to hear it. You hate to hear it. But people have let you know you stink. 
What are you going to do? Henry Nouwen said, Our behavior creates loneliness. Repentance is the first step to ending loneliness. You know, the fact of the matter is, there are people here this morning whose relationships really aren't that close. There's a lot of loneliness, even in a crowd. Repentance is the first step to ending loneliness. I'm going to ask you to bow your head in prayer just out of respect. You're in a church. Just out of respect to close your eyes so other people can have their private space. Would you? Lord, as we come, help us to admit where we stink. Would you just let the Lord speak to you about stinking behavior and attitudes you've had? Now, if you've never invited Jesus into your life, you can't pray. Because you, you have no relationship with Jesus. Your sin stands between you and Him. You, ha you can't pray. If you have never invited Jesus into your life, you need to do that this morning and to come up after worship and begin. That will be humbling for you. But you can't stay proud and follow Jesus. It's the beginning of breaking the back of sin in your life. Have you ever invited Jesus into your life? Why not today? Is there any reason? You got a good reason why not today? Would you raise your hand if you want to invite Jesus into your life? Anybody? Yes, anybody? Just keep your eyes down. Then I want you to come up and pray after worship. That's your first step. Lord, for the rest of us that know you, we pray that you would deliver us from the stench, especially if we've been a critic. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of Dr. Mike from Compass Church in Salinas. We hope you're encouraged by his practical Bible-based teaching 